Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello, folks. I am going to give a very quick introduction, welcome, and then we're going to turn over today's events to Stephanie Young to lead us through a very important discussion with some very esteemed panelists today. So we're thrilled to do that. What I wanted to share is that today's event is going to be video recorded so you can watch it on YouTube. It is also being live streamed to Facebook and the audio will be a podcast for the Center for the Political Future's Bully Pulpit podcast. So it'll be five distribution methods for the single event. That's how much we believe the world needs to see what you're about to experience. This semester, we have the great fortune of having seven esteemed fellows, and we are thrilled that Stephanie Young, one of our premier fellows, is going to lead today's conversation. So without further ado, folks, thank you for coming to today's event, and thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Kami, and thank you to all the staff. I'm going to sit down, but I figured I would just greet you here first, do some introductions, and then we will sit in the middle and have a lively discussion. Uh, and it won't be lively if you all do not participate. So we will definitely have time for questions and get some hopefully really good answers. The first person I want to talk about is Brittany Packnett Cunningham, who is joining uh, us today in conversation. Well, one one quick thing, I just wanted to give you a little, a little bit more background on who I am. I'm an esteemed fellow. I'm so excited to be here at USC teaching a class on in the intersection of pop culture and politics. And here are some of the Wonderful people in my class. If you guys could raise your hands, they ask amazing questions every week. They are going to be the future of politics in this country. And I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful because of who they are. Right now, I currently lead When We All Vote, which is a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit organization that was launched by former First Lady Michelle Obama in 2018. And our whole mission is to change the culture around voting and to increase participation in every election by closing the voting race and age gap. Uh, so we work a lot with communities of color. We work a lot with young people. In fact, we had our first ever Culture of Democracy Summit right here in Los Angeles, California with Mrs. Obama. I know this young man was there with us that day. And we talked about what is our individual and collective role in expanding and protecting democracy from sports entertainment to academia to uh, civic leaders, because uh, we all play a role. And thus, uh, that's why I have this class called the Intersection of Culture uh, pop culture and politics because they they do run together and they do influence each other for bad or for good. So it's obviously Black History Month, one of the best months of the year. My birthday was on Friday, so I have to shout out February. And we're so excited to talk to folks who are living in Black history and making strides uh, for each of us every single day. Uh, and so Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Brittany is a leader uh, at the intersection of culture, justice, and policy. As an activist, educator, and writer, she builds platforms to activate everyday people to take transformative action for justice. Brittany serves as the vice president of social impact for BET Networks, uh, is an NBC News political analyst. I'm sure you've seen her on MSNBC and host of Undistracted, her amazing podcast and intersectional news and justice podcast. Brittany is also the founder and principal of Love and Power Works, a full service social impact and equity agency. She's done everything from leading protests in Ferguson, Missouri, to 
sitting on President of the First Century Policing Task Force uh, and helping us to create better policies, uh, to leading us hopefully to criminal justice reform. And she's been a voice for the voiceless. Uh, and she's been a very dear friend for many years. So I'm so glad Brittany could be here with us today. The next person who's also very busy and parking right now, but we're going to get it started, is my other good friend, Angela Rye who is an award-winning host, social justice advocate, lawyer, commentator, and self-described empowermentor. She embodies what it means to be a bringer of truth. And if you ever saw on CNN or any of the television work that she has done, she never shies away from telling the truth, no matter how hard it could be. She's named after uh, the Angela Davis, and she lives up to that name each and every day. Uh, she has her own social impact agency. She's also uh, does work for ABC. And she is a leading political strategist and voice. And we're so excited to have both of them here to talk about living Black history. So with that, I will come over and we'll get the conversation started. When Angela comes, she will join us. So I wanted to start by just acknowledging Carter G. Woodson, uh, who was the founder of Black History Month. Uh, he was, a, for those of you who don't know, he was a scholar um, whose dedication to celebrating the historic contributions of African-Americans uh, led to the establishment of Black History Month, marked every February since 1976. Woodson uh, believed that Black people should be proud of their heritage, and all Americans should understand the largely overlooked achievement of Black Americans. Uh, and I think oftentimes when we think about Black History Month, it's like, all right, let's sing a really sad song. Let's remember all the bad things that have happened. And let's talk about how people are overcoming, as opposed to why don't we celebrate who we are uh, and the fullness um, of our contributions, not just to this country, but to this world? And I had the privilege of creating the last Black History Month for the first Black president and first lady of the United States. And that was... Slight flex. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that was that was a really big moment. And, and my whole purpose in that month was not to sing sad songs, but rather to say, what are we doing? What have we done? Look how amazing this culture is and what we contribute every day. So I wanted to start off with celebration. What do you love most about Black History Month? Oh, goodness. Well, first of all, thank you and USC um, and the Center for the Political Future for having been hosting this wonderful conversation. Obviously, you know how incredibly fortunate you are to have Stephanie be part of the team. You know, one of the things I love most about Black History Month is the opportunity to revisit legacy making. You talk about planning that last Black History Month of the first Black president. I distinctly remember that month because you created what is now honestly kind of legendary in our circles because it was this first intergenerational civil rights meeting of its kind. And I remember I was sitting next to John Lewis. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, I was sitting next to President Obama. John Lewis was sitting on the other side. And so Stephanie and her brilliance, right, is thinking about creating this intergenerational imagery. But I'm sitting there just floored sitting across from Reverend C.T. Vivian, listening to him talk about um, legacy, right? And the opportunity that each of us have to live into what ancestors built for us. And so for me, what's exciting about Black History Month is not only to honor my ancestors, but to think critically about what kind of ancestor I am becoming, to think intentionally and to act intentionally to make sure that when somebody is able to do something, to be a little bit more free, to have a little bit more access, to be able to push further than I was, right? They know, or maybe they might not know, but they'll be able to do that because the rest of us had our hand to the plow. I also just love like seeing Black people shine and be beautiful. 
And I think that so often it is a, like you said, there can be kind of a, a dirge and a, a weight and a heaviness to this month. And sometimes that's necessary. And yet there are folks out there creating Black history every single day. I mean, look, Beyonce started off the month creating Black history at the Grammys. Okay. And I very much celebrated that moment in part because we had an artist who was so intentionally creating Black art and who had built an entire career and everybody thought she was going to be a pop girl and everybody thought she was going to do this kind of music and that kind of music. But she was like, no, I'm going to talk to you about police violence. No, I'm going to reach back into my Creole ancestry and bring up all of this good Africanness, right? I'm going to do all of the things. I'm going to bring an HBCU experience to Coachella in the middle of the desert. And now she's the most decorated Grammy winner of all time, right? There are folks who are making Black history every single day by being boundless, by refusing to operate by a status quo that would rather reduce us and have us fit into whatever they project onto us. And so I love watching and celebrating all the beautiful Black people who are doing that on farmlands, in cities, in rural areas, in churches, in synagogues, in mosques, like, you know, on on tracks and, and fields, like, you know, people who are making it happen in so many places. It's a beautiful moment when we shine the light. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so often, you know, for any marginalized community, there is a brush that we paint over and say, this is who you are and this is what you do. But there's so many different ways of being Black. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the question of of how race and identity has impacted politics continues to ring every single day. I mean, we're hearing members of Congress saying, you know, there are white people just as lazy as Black people, literally sitting in Congress today. Yeah. You know, and I know that after President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act or you know, the Voting Rights Act, all these different things, we, we've always felt like, okay, we're moving forward, right? Then comes President Barack Obama, and we're living in this post-racial society. Big air quote. I know. Yeah. So why do you think that people first love to jump to the post-racial conclusion? I know it's just like, it's a fun thing, right? We, we want to be done with it. And what do you think has, has kept us kind of continue to bump up against that? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this, <laughs> but bump up against that roadblock consistently. You're absolutely right. People want to be done with it because it's sticky and it's messy and it's hard. <laughs> the fascinating part about all of this, though, is that we keep bumping up against it because we haven't done our reckoning, right? And when I say we, I mean all of us have not done our reckoning. So I remember traveling to Alabama um, during the opening weekend of the Legacy Museum. So Brian Stevenson, the Equal Justice Initiative, they opened not only the Legacy Museum, but what we know now to be America's largest lynching memorial. And I remember finding the marker for Centerville, Mississippi, which is where I knew my PacNet side at least to be from. And standing there and seeing not only names on this marker of people that we know were lynched, with these blank spaces for lynching that we know occurred, but we don't know the names. All of those blank spaces are a family. All of those blank spaces are dreams that were stolen. All of those blank spaces were a future that was denied. And because we have not reckoned with it, we continue to revisit it. So there was a time when there would be a banner hung in certain parts of the country whenever a Black person was lynched. And it would say a man was lynched today. And when the Ferguson uprising started, some of us started to repost that picture every time the police killed another Black person. So when Michael Brown was killed, a man was lynched today. When Sandra Bland was killed, a woman was lynched today. 
right? We know that we're doomed to repeat history if we do not learn its proper lessons, right? So we keep bumping up against it because people find it too inconvenient and uncomfortable to learn the lessons because the lessons implicate things for each of us, right? For Black folks, they implicate that we need to step into our full power without apology, right? For folks who are not Black, there is an implication about, well, how did I get what I have exactly? And therefore, what do I owe, right? And sometimes we mean that literally, hello, reparations. Sometimes we mean that in terms of space making and opportunity creation and actually having to face ourselves when we look at history is incredibly terrifying if you know enough to know that you could be on the wrong side of it. Yeah. And when you think about Bullock, when uh, President Nelson Mandela was elected in South Africa in 1994, they immediately had a race and reconciliation group come together, people of all races, backgrounds, to talk about what had happened in this country and how do you move forward, even though, you know, nothing's perfect, but there was that acknowledgement. Brian Stephen talks a lot about acknowledging what's happening or what has happened helps you to actually take some steps forward. So now as we're kind of thinking about Black History Month, right, or history in general, (laughs) and we're in a war for history right now Mm -hmm. Uh, in certain places like Florida. I lived there for a number of different years. My sister is one of the deputy superintendents for a very large uh, school district and is terrified that she will lose her job. And we're we're really facing a reckoning when it comes to being able to actually look back at history in an accurate way. But beyond that, preparing and giving our children the, that benefit so that they can go forward, all children, so they can go forward and make a better way. What are your thoughts, not just around that, but how we actually work to organize and fight back? I, I've seen so many people talk about Where's Department of Education and why aren't people stepping in? And mm-hmm. honestly, I do think we're kind of slow to the we're slow to the field on this because yeah. they really are focusing on history and young people. Yeah. Um, so I say this as a former educator myself, and we talked about this a bit with your with your incredible class. But all of us know that the classroom is the front line of revolution. It is either the place where you continuously learn to harness your own power, to be empowered, to be game changing, or you learn to internalize the supremacy of your kind and to operate in that for the rest of your life. Again, an uncomfortable truth that we don't like to face. I mean, first of all, do you know how much unmitigated gall and audacity you have to have to ban AP Black history on the eve of Black History Month? Yeah. Right? Like, we shouldn't miss the symbolism. (laughs) There's intention there to say, I know you're about to start singing Lift Every Voice. But stop it. I know you're about to wear your kente cloth. I know you're about to teach all the kids about the Black inventors, but pause. Because I want you to know what we think of you and your history at this precise moment. And what we need to be clear about is that Florida is not going to stop at Florida alone. Hey, sis, come on up. We having a party. Hey, everybody. Catch your breath. Welcome, Angela. We're just talking about Florida. Right in time. Right, right on time. So I'll I'll let you catch your breath and then I'm passing the mic because the people are anxious to hear from you. So Florida is, what's happening in Florida is not just going to stay in Florida. And this was predictable, right? Ron DeSantis was there to create a model for other states to copy and paste. And a bunch of us have been saying this. And now four other governors have said, we too at banning AP Black history in our states, right? A predictable outcome. So to your question about what we do about it, we have to be creatively subversive. And when I was running an education organization in St. Louis, I used to take 
people, I used to take my new teachers to the bank of the Mississippi River, to a place called the Mary Meacham Freedom Crossing. Mary Meacham was a free Black woman who was married to a Black pastor, and she used to take people to one of the shallowest parts of the river so that she could help them cross from enslaved territory in Missouri to free territory in Illinois. The other thing that happened at that bank, though, was that her husband, John Barry Meacham, did something creatively subversive that we need to learn from in this moment. So John Barry Meacham was a pastor, and he started teaching free and enslaved Black children how to read and write in the basement of his church, right? And he, other churches started to follow suit. Well, similar to what's happening in Florida, the Missouri State Legislature said, uh, uh-uh, because an educated people is a free people, and we intend to keep you subjugated. So they made it illegal to teach any Black child, free or enslaved, to read or write. So what did John Barry Meacham do? He got together with some other people, got some wood and some nails, went to that bank on the Mississippi River and built a steamboat. Because on the Mississippi River, we can evade the rules and the laws of the state of Missouri and be creatively subversive, literally teaching these young people on a floating steamboat. So I used to take my teachers there because I wanted them to embody the spirit of John Barry Meacham in their classroom. I wanted them to understand that to treat the classroom like the first line of revolution was going to be a subversive act, whether or not Ron DeSantis is in office or not, right? And if you're going to embody that, if you're going to understand the power of that subversion, then now is the time to replicate that. So the Sunday schools, the play dates, the library games, and all the gatherings that young people have in our communities, those are the places to teach the history that they're denying. Go and buy those books that are being banned and buy five at a time and start giving them out to the young people that you know. There is no reason why we have to wait on others to do what we know is right. Yeah, and it's not just for Black children. And I think that's what's really important, too. It's because I think that sometimes in this country, we can say, well, that's happening to you, right? It's not happening to me. So when I go into the voting booth, I'm thinking about me. Yeah, I'm thinking about my block, my kids, my circle. But he's taken it a step further and said, well, maybe we'll ban all AP courses. And what does that show you? That just shows you that you can't escape racism and prejudice, even if it's not targeted towards you. That type of hatred will seep and touch us all. And we're all going to be impacted. I know you just got here, but we've been talking about obviously what's happening in Florida. How do we fight back? We just would love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I think um, from what I heard of Brittany's answer is very comprehensive. Um, so first of all, hello, everyone. I apologize for my tardiness. Um, I would say, if it wasn't just your birthday a couple of days ago, that I was getting her back for normal dinner date times because this is what time Steph normally shows up. I'm out my way. Or the other day she said, I'm wrapping up. I'm like, what are you wrapping up? Like, come on. Um, But I do apologize. I'm directionally challenged and USC was ready for the haze up today. So I digress. Um, And speaking of being hazed up, Florida and Ron DeSantis. Um, I'm someone who still very much believes that, um, and I I'm, I feel bad because in, in an era where Stop the Steal has resulted in an insurrection on Capitol Hill that almost cost the lives of several people who we know and love. I really do believe that Ron DeSantis stole the Florida election in 2018. I do not believe that he rightfully earned his position. There are several ballots that were never counted at USPS uh, postal offices all over the state. And they wouldn't even do a recount in Miami-Dade um, and Broward because they said they wouldn't have enough time. So one day we will find out the truth. Um, and I'm certain that that is just the kind of truth that Ron DeSantis wants to keep out of classrooms because it's challenging and it's hard. And we know there are things that we have rightfully earned, we rightfully deserve. 
including if you let Whoopi Goldberg tell it 20 acres and a mule instead of 40. But those are those are the things. And so um, right now, in the midst of grieving what we are, what we see happening to the democracy in this country that was already hanging in the balance, that was already very fragile. I recently lost my grandmother. My grandmother was 105 years old. She was born in 1917. And the conversations that we had about voting, which were rare, Graham liked to throw more shade than she liked to tell historical uh, narratives. And um, so it runs in the family. But one of the things that she made clear is that she didn't have the ability to really vote until she got to Seattle, um, until she got to Seattle, Washington in the 60s. And so what I think is important for us to remember too, Steph, is it's not just the racism that might accidentally infect your space. It's the fact that we live in an era where we have grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who lived in that era. You know, so that's that's the thing. We are immediately impacted by this. These things happened not that long ago. And we say that all the time, but I think we really take it for granted. And that means it also could be repeated. And the best way to repeat a history that has infected us is for us to not know it. No, absolutely. And I think that's extremely important. My grandmother died at 97 years old, but she was also born in 1913 and technically didn't get the right to vote until she was 52 years old. So I think that we kind of think sometimes we're so removed and we're really not that far removed. This happened in the backyards of our life not too long ago. Now, you kind of change the subject matter to voting, which obviously we love to talk about here. And, you know, in 2020, we saw a record voter turnout where over 60 percent of Americans voted. In 2022, we also saw another record breaking turnout. We saw high, high youth voter turnout. The funny thing about the high, high youth voter turnout, it's 27 percent. But that was something to applaud in this country. You know, we were not like other democracies where you see 80 to 90 percent of uh, people actually participating. And, you know, at the end of the day, if like if the the people voting um, or people not voting, the people who are voting are voting for people who reflect them and their values, right? So you will be left out if you don't vote. And we know that more than 90% of Black men and women voted for President Biden in 2022. This is a, a always a play because African-Americans have been, I think, a very sure voting block for Democrats for obvious reasons, because we're voting for our lives oftentimes, not just voting for something nice. Some Republicans think Democrats take Black voters for granted. I think some Black people think Democrats take Black voters for granted. But I would love to get both of your perspective on how you think the party, the Democratic Party is serving African-American community and what you would like to see done differently. We'll start with you, Angela Rye. Well, I would be the contrary in here. I do think, and I've seen, and I've witnessed, Steph, you bore witness to this. We had to walk out of a DNC meeting once where I accidentally knocked over the flag. But it was poetic justice because they were disrespectful. I'm sorry. Angela didn't even realize she knocked over a flag. She was so mad. I was like, you knocked over the American flag. As I said, poetic justice because they were being so disrespectful to members of Congress who, if it wasn't for their hard work every single day, the Congressional Black Caucus, they wouldn't have the base they have. Um, Steph has done yeoman's work, not part on a partisan level at all. But reaching out to um, black and brown voters, youth voters, the elder, our elders, um, to ensure they feel like they are represented and can turn out and should turn out to protect their rights and their access to the ballot. Unfortunately, what we've seen historically time and time again, election after election, is even through our diligent support and our faithfulness 
to the Democratic Party, we are regularly cheated on. There's a lot of infidelity happening, whether we're talking about access to contracts at the party level, whether we're talking about jobs on Capitol Hill and the lack of diversity reflected in offices all over the House and the Senate, especially the Senate side. God, you know, if black folks are not elected, we are not hired writ large. That is how it is. Whether we're talking about corporate America or we're talking about the Hill or we're talking about state legislators or we're talking about um, the city council, that is just the truth. And I think that what we have to start realizing is that until we take our power back in our own hands, Dr. King defined power as the ability to achieve purpose. When we take our power back and come up with some demands, it's okay to demand something for your loyalty. It's okay to say, hey, I've given you this. Now, here are the things you owe me. Not it sure would be nice to have, but like these are the things that you owe me. And any other diligent, disciplined voting block in this country does that. And we're the only ones that feel like, oh, we're so lucky to be here. No, you're lucky to have us here. You are. And I am so grateful for the many things they do. And they love talking about that child tax credit. But there are a whole lot more things that can be done. For example, voting rights a missed opportunity when there was a majority in the House and the Senate. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Now, all of a sudden, after we've seen two more disastrous deaths, murders this year, Joe Biden is like, oh, let's pass George Floyd Justice and Police Act. Newsflash, you don't have a majority in the House. And the Senate, even though you have a majority, doesn't support it. So we can talk about rhetorical support, but we need some concrete things. Or... We need to have a system that really looks like democracy, like South Africa after Nelson Mandela was released from prison. There was a democracy where it was, if you played soccer, they had a party for you, right? Like maybe we need that. Maybe a two-party system doesn't serve us. And so, yes, Steph, I vote with the Democratic Party, but I'd be mad as hell at them all the time. (laughs) I know. I don't think that's contrarian at all. This is part of the reason why I represent a nonpartisan organization. Um, Well, I don't run a nonprofit organization um, or a nonpartisan organization. This is part of the reason why I am uh, a part of the Working Families Party, right? So understanding that building political power looks like literally building it, right? Which I know the two of these folks know intimately well. Working Families Party, when you look at what they've done in Pennsylvania, when you look at what they've done in New York, when you look at what they've done in local races, especially in the Midwest, these were seats that folks were told was impossible to be held by somebody young, impossible to be held by somebody progressive, in certain instances, impossible to be held by a Black woman or a queer person. The list goes on and on. And yet they continue to mount electoral victory after electoral victory. And it is to say that since America loves competition so much, then let me give you some, right? Let me actually set up a a system because I know that you're not going to just let me in. This is this is what Fannie Lou Hamer is saying when she's saying, no, we're going to get seats at the convention for the Democratic for the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party, because I know you're not going to give me anything. I have to force my way to the table. Otherwise, you're not going to hear from me. So the Working Families Party is doing that, yes, through protests, yes, through movement coalition, but also through electing folks to office. And as that coalition of people continues to grow, not just in Congress, but in state houses, on boards of alder people, when you've got networks of mayors that are associated with them, all of those victories matter. Because as they mount, they continue to build collective power that then can actually challenge more establishment spaces that are forced to hear from the rest of us because 
Look at all these folks. There are folks paying attention to us. There are folks donating to us. There are folks voting for our candidates. There are people that we, from your establishment that we've unseated that you told us could never, ever be pushed out of office. And yet we've put somebody in their place, right? So, and this can get sticky because sometimes we end up talking about replacing people that we've loved for a long time. And yet it's deeply challenging, right? I mean, especially the three of us, we're all people we've worked for these people, right? Like we, we've selected their houses, right? Like we've like, these are folks, some of them are like family to us. And yet we all understand the importance of political evolution. Mm-hmm. I think that, and I say this from a perspective of police violence, but it is mirrored and mapped onto many other issues. I remember in 2014, during the Ferguson uprising, we really sought the community. We said, what are the solutions that you want? So when I was sitting on that task force with President Obama, I was not bringing things that were just made up in my own mind. My seat was a community seat. I was there to represent my people. So they wanted body cameras. People wanted um, civilian review boards with real discipline power. People wanted external and independent uh, investigations of police misconduct. All of these things were things that the people wanted in 2014. But it's forward just six short years later to 2020 and George Floyd, folks are saying you all have had enough time to implement these reforms and we are still dying, in this case, in greater numbers than we were in 2014. So the zeitgeist moved faster than they planned. They thought that a lot of people thought that there was more time to give the body cameras more time to work. Folks said no, because we've seen them turn off the body cameras, cover the body cameras. They never turned them on in the first place. They edited the footage. They never released the footage. Oh, something happened with the computers and the storage system. Guess what? We tried it. It failed. And we're still dying. So we don't have any more patience. So then you start hearing people say, you know what, you need to move the resources from the police department to the things that actually keep us safe. Then is the defund conversation. Then is the abolish conversation. Not because those things are new, but they gained steam because the zeitgeist moved really quickly. And our political evolution needs to reflect that. There need to be people in office who come from those movement spaces who are there to push back on some of the more incremental things that some other folks want to do in order to keep the entire, entire operation honest. And what I loved uh, that you said was pushback. And I think that sometimes, you know, whatever side you're on, whether you're in an institution or outside of an institution, you need that tension uh, to move the ball forward. And obviously, we need a little bit more tension to continue to push this boulder up the hill because really, democracy is still, you know, hanging by a thread or two, considering the number of folks that we have that are representing communities all around this country don't even believe in democracy. And 2024 will be here in a blink of an eye. And there is, thank you, there's a ton of work that needs to be done to get ready. And look, I hate being in a perpetual election cycle. And I feel like we're always there in this country. Uh, And we need to to figure out how are we actually creating, you know, some real and, and yeah, some real consistent political power that that has a tent big enough for all of us to feel seen and heard. Now, I believe we only have about 10 more minutes. So I want to make sure that um, we get some of your questions, thoughts, input. So not to put anybody on the spot, does anybody have a question? And if you do, raise your hand and we'll bring a microphone around to you. Oh, one of their students. Well, thank you all for being here today. We, I really enjoyed hearing you all talk. And it's just really amazing to um, hear your thoughts on, you know, Black History Month and all of the amazing stuff you do. My question is... Um, how do you keep your faith in democracy, given that you see its obstacles firsthand in your careers? 
Uh, I'm Eleanor and I'm a, a freshman in public policy. I don't want to lie to you. There are many times where I question like democracy here. You know, to Steph's point, there's, you know, one side where I'm questioning the people, like when we see how many issues are so important, when we see that it's a matter of life and death, when people are like, stop telling me we could die, you could. <laughs> like, you know, your vagina is on the ballot, your your life, your air, like, you, you know, where you live, like everything is on the ballot, your, whether or not you have clean water, you know, so I get mad at us and it's not from a place of judgment. It is massive misunderstanding because I was raised so differently. I never was raised to think it was an option. Like I was going to the polls with my parents before I could vote and was mad they didn't give me a real ballot, you know? And I think the other thing that I'm, I'm frustrated about is knowing in Black History Month, the hard labor, the hard fought labor, the blood, sweat and tears that our ancestors put into these systems to never have recognized them. I resent the hell out of that. So there's a conundrum that I find myself in. I don't want to project that on, on my people or any of us. But the conundrum I find myself in is why am I fighting so hard for this system that never saw us? You know, what is it going to take for us to maybe it's not a reconstruction. Maybe it's a complete reinvention. You know, what is it going to take for us to get there, but to really ensure that we have a system that actually serves all of its people because all of its people deserve to be served. If for no other reason, you ain't paying these people, whether we voted for them or not, right? Like for real. And so I think I don't want to say like I get up every day like I believe in democracy. That's not it. It's like, how am I going to change it so I can make this work for me? So I can make it work for the people who are completely disenchanted and disengaged because they deserve to feel proud of their country. I will never forget what Michelle Obama said during the 2008 election. For the first time in my adult life, I feel proud of my country. And so many of us were like, girl, that's true. And they were like, oh, my God. Right. But it's like when you look at you guys have Nicole Hannah-Jones coming to campus, when you look at the history and the trajectory of this country from 1619, there are people who still in their adult lives are not proud of this country. We should be striving to ensure that we all can feel proud. And it's not it for a moment in time with the 2008 election and seeing him sworn into office, you know, or because we see Beyonce singing at the inauguration, you know, even though that's amazing, or Amanda Gorman doing, you know, doing a poem. It's because we feel like consistently we are represented, we are seen, we are heard, we are protected. How about that for an idea for black folks and people of color for democracy, that it would actually protect us? Protect and serve us. Okay. I um, I was telling you all earlier. Yeah, I'll for that. Although not too much on Beyonce, sis. Not too much. I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. She just took all my money. Um, Bye, Angela. Um, Like we were talking about in class, I did an episode of um, Finding Your Root last year. And I have a copy of the inheritance papers that were passed from one Charles Spann to his son, R.R. Span on his death. They were the proprietors and owners of the largest plantation in the area and listed next to cattle and antique china and houses and bonds. The woman named Joanna and her husband, Jacob, and they're listed for $500. Joanna is my four-time great-grandmother. She had 24 children. She was born enslaved. 
She died free. She lived to be at least 98 years old. And what we know about Joanna is that she did something that was nearly impossible. Because when you, if you go back and you watch my episode, Professor Gates is so excited to tell me about what they found about Joanna because they look at the 1900 census and they see three generations of my family living in two houses next to each other, which tells us that Joanna was able to keep most of her family from being sold off. I look at that all the time. I had it blown up and put up in my house because I never, ever, ever want to forget that my lineage, my bloodline, my being was not supposed to be here. I was supposed to be used and discarded. Joanna's 24 children were not supposed to carry on the legacy of that family. They were supposed to till the land until they died. That's it. So to similar to Angela, it's not for me about faith in democracy. It's about knowing the stuff that I come from. It's about recognizing that after all of the stuff they've tried to throw at my people, we're still here and we're still doing it bigger and better than most people, right? And even in the times when I don't have any hope or optimism, I still have a responsibility. There is a, <laughs> she, they call me Bishop. You probably know why already. Both my parents are preachers. I can't help it. But there's a, there's a concept in, in Afro-pessimism. If you go and read an author named Robert D.G. Kelly or you go and read one of our modern abolitionists, Miriam Kaba, they talk all the time about the fact that it's not about believing in some esoteric system that we're taught is perfect, even though it was actually built by a bunch of slave owners and they were far from perfect. It's actually about recognizing that if I'm a part of this system, if my people are continuously being oppressed by it, then I have no choice but to try and make it better with the time that I have on this earth. That's not about believing in something being perfect or having faith all the time, because the truth is, I don't. I can't look at five states trying to ban AP Black history and feel like, yes, we're really, I see the light shining through. I don't always. But when I go and I look at those inheritance papers and I understand just how far my people came, there's not an option for me to give up. And I think that it's okay for us to say we're not always hopeful and we're not always optimistic, but we are always committed. Amen. Amen. And I think one thing just to just to tag on to Reverend Packnett Cunningham. Oh, sorry, Bishop. I'm Amy. You gotta you gotta run for bishop. You just can't be come on. Um and we all Yeah, exactly. No, but in all seriousness, I think that we have to start looking at democracy as an investment rather than like this ideal. So whatever we put into it is what we're going to potentially get out of it. And I think that in this country, we've been so used to saying or thinking one and done. Why isn't this all fixed? Right. Mm -hmm. This is never going to ever be all fixed. We have to have that consistency and participation in a multitude of different ways. All right. So we'll do go to this young lady. Introduce yourself, though. Okay. Uh, my name is Ari Murray, and I'm a current sophomore international relations major, and I'm also in Stephanie's wonderful class. My big question is, all of your work has to do with addressing a wider audience. And right now, I'm currently going through Isabel Wilkerson's book on the Black migration. And she does a really, really good job of telling the truth, but also being relatable to whoever's reading her book. So I think my question for you all is, how do you manage being very candid because the way explain something to me is not how you would explain it to someone else. So how do you manage to tell the whole truth while also making it accessible and both relatable to a wide range of people? Great question. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Richard Green. I went to USC Law School. I want to thank Stephanie for calling me a young man. That was really, it was worth coming down to USC for that. And I was a fellow for the Constitutional Rights Foundation when I was in third year, and I teach civics. And I want to ask if it's really fair to blame the Democratic Party when the Republic, for not passing voting rights, not restoring Roe v. Wade, not passing George Floyd, when virtually everything that America wants is being blocked by something called the filibuster. And the truth is, you mentioned 27 percent of 18 to 29 year olds. We missed being able to restore Roe v. Wade, pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Enhancement Act by 35,000 votes in the midterms. 9,000, we lost the House by 9,000 and Mandela Barnes lost by 26,000 in Wisconsin. He would have been the vote to get over the filibuster and create a carve out. So is it fair to blame the Democrats? Good question. Uh, Hello, everyone. My name is Kilo. My question for y'all is, uh, you mentioned celebration. And I was curious of ways you embody celebration in this month, but in your personal practice as well. And even in, in your classroom setting, like how do you celebrate, you know, whether it's like after finishing a paper or a hard discussion? All right. Okay. So does everybody remember the questions? We'll start with you. I'm going to move quickly and address one and three because I feel like two is for you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do. I, I vote blue, but I, I know who I am. You know. Anyway, so the answer honestly is twofold. Very quickly, I know that sometimes my message is actually not for everybody. And I've, I've let myself off the hook from trying to please everybody. I figured out a long time ago, especially when I was running a, a multi-million dollar nonprofit, I started getting emails from mostly white donors who were not pleased with my, shall we say, political activity. What they really mean was me marching for the dignity of black people was that even when I gave my most impassioned, most articulate, most thoughtful, most well-researched, most documented, most like strongest statistical analysis to I thought proved to them why this was what we had to do. They were still going to think what they thought about me anyway. I was still going to be some angry black woman who was inappropriate and stepping out of her place. So if you're going to think that when I try to be perfect for you, then I might as well just be myself, right? Like the girls that get it, get it. And sometimes that's very simply okay, right? Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes there are messages for other people. And I think that when I recognize that it can be for a broader audience, storytelling always matters. People remember stories more than they remember data. And when you can humanize things, people remember people most of all. And then I think when we invite people into the work, that can be a really powerful tool. Everybody wants to be invited to the table and feel Like they've got something to contribute. And I think that when it comes to freedom work, everybody does have something to contribute. So I want you to, I want you to feel invited. I want you to feel responsible and accountable, but I want you to feel invited. Through celebrating, that for me is all about community. I know who I want to text in my phone when something good happens. I know who I want to go out to eat with, even though they'll be late. I know, I know who I want to go have a drink with, right? And that, that is fair. You did beat me last time. I don't live here. I don't know this traffic pattern. But community is, I think, one of our most essential values as Black people and being unafraid and uninhibited and going to revisit that, even though this culture teaches us rugged individualism, is where I find my celebration. So we'll go be loud in the restaurant and have a good time. And I dare somebody to tell us to be quiet. (laughs) All right. Last answer. Quickly, I 
don't know how to code switch a message or my personality. So I am not the person. Um, I would say, although I wouldn't call what Steph does code switch and she's very effective. And if I have to, you would say code switch? Oh no. Yeah. But no, but she knows how to be different ways with different people. She's very good at, she's a bishop's child. So this is your person. And she normally will be like, um, Angela, I think that you should try. Like I'll send her emails like fix this because this is what I want to say. She'll be like, this is a little sharp, you know, so she can help you massage things. I cannot. I can help you get it out, but she gonna help you get it right. I'm not blaming Democrats. What I am is saying that it's time for the Democratic Party to be accountable to black people. How about that? Bishop? Yeah, to be courageous, to take the same type of courage, courageous tact that we've had to take, where we've had to sacrifice our lives. I will say I am blaming white moderates um, in the same way that Dr. King did. Um, and I can give you two to point to who took the they decided to take the fall. So I'll call them out. And that is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Those are your people. And so when you have a majority by number and in party name, but they choose to go against the policies that are in the best interest of the majority of the party, I blame, correct, I blame white moderates, unabashedly, like unashamedly so. And I'll give you some more examples. We can go to the Democratic Party meeting just a few weeks ago where there was an all-out brawl almost when when Joe Biden wanted to change the primary order from Iowa and New Hampshire to South Carolina and Nevada first. This is not a party of unity because we know how to be polite. We know how to say all the right things to rile the base, to rile the progressives, to make people say, woo, woo, woo. You know, we know. When when people could um seed their platforms after George Floyd suffered to take his last breath for nine minutes and 30 seconds, all of a sudden people knew exactly what to do. Like that raggedy boyfriend you should have got rid of a long time ago. They knew exactly what to do. So I will blame white moderates. I will blame the Democrats who know the right thing to do, but yet it continues to fail them. They continue to not take the step they know we need to take to ensure that we get further along as a collective because why? They're comfortable. So I would say there's a difference between the white moderate and arguably even a limousine liberal from a progressive and someone who is black and pragmatic. And I think those are the divides that we have to heal to address the big tent. Kilo, you know me, I'm going to say to celebrate a playlist will always do. Thank you. (laughs) Well, first of all, I just want to thank these two lovely ladies who have the privilege of calling our friends. And we do go to eat and hang out and do fun stuff. I also want to thank Kami and Natalie and Kayla and the entire team for all that they've done to make tonight happen. And Tatiana for keeping everybody straight. And for all of you who ran to get Angela, to get Brittany. This is a big campus. But anyway, we appreciate each and every one of you for coming out on this cold L.A. evening as well. And we hope that you celebrate something about Black history for the next, what, five, six days. It's it's almost over. Yes. All year long. All right. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. At USC POL Future, that's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.